Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Okay, this this is a big one. You know, all this week we've been talking to these authors who've gotten their books banned recently, and I don't know if any author's banning has caused a bigger hubbub than Art Spiegelman. Just a quick refresher, his acclaimed graphic memoir, Mouse, which covers his father's experience in the Holocaust, was removed from the 8th grade curriculum in McMinn County, Tennessee early last year. Of course, Mouse isn't his only comic. Another one of his graphic memoirs, titled Breakdowns, was recently re-released, and Spiegelman talked to NPR's Scott Simon about the rocky aspects of his home life the book covers. But they do get to talking about the book-banning incident, and I I was surprised at how much the incident weighed on him, you know? He's always come off to me as one of those, like, tough-as-nails, old-school New York types, but he says the whole affair left him unable to draw. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Breakdowns has been published before, almost 45 years ago. It's been republished a couple of times, and now once again, it is Art Spiegelman's large format graphic album of experimental comics about his early years, his parents' lives, and a death, and the first stirrings and sightings of work that would change what comics can mean. And Art Spiegelman, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his 1992 graphic novel, Mouse, and this year was honored with the National Book Foundation's Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters, joins us now. Art, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. On an early page, we see your mother telling a young Artie, maybe it's better not to be a genius. Geniuses lead such troubled lives. How did she know that? I'm not sure if she did, except I think it was part of the very complex messaging I was given as a kid. On the one hand, I expect you to be a genius. It's the least you could do if I survived World War II and hatched you. And on the other hand, you're already such a mess. Be careful about pursuing your geniushood. There's some kind of double-bind messaging in there. The war and how your parents survived it. Would it be fair to say it steered your own life a lot in ways maybe you recognize now more than you did when you were younger? Well, yeah, especially because of the codicil you put in the sentence, more now than before. Before I was on a kind of automatic pilot following uh, a destiny I didn't know I was following, let's say. When I first started working on what was the longer version of Mouse, I was just saying, I'm not trying to teach anybody anything. I just want to tell a good yarn. And I didn't think of it as having any use value. It wasn't like, I'm going to teach people that they should never do such a thing again. Never, never again. It wasn't with carrying that um, moral responsibility uh, consciously at all. And it was um, only in more recent very recent years, that I thought, you know, gee, it really could happen again. Maybe I was just naive. And now now I'm sort of grateful that it has an afterlife, that it can function in some way as a way of letting people know what happened and that that's important to know. This could be rough, but of course it's part of breakdowns. Can I get you to talk about 
that day in 1968, you came home, and there was a crowd in front of your home. Yeah, uh, I now understand that to be one of the central traumas of my life. But at the time, I was just coming home and coming home late from having spent a weekend with uh, my girlfriend, who my parents didn't approve of. And it seemed like many people I knew on the block were gathered around the front of this two-family home, as were police cars and an ambulance. And a cousin of mine corralled me and got me away from in front of the front of the house to take me to uh, our family doctor, who was the person who had to explain to me that my mother had just killed herself upstairs. That was the beginning of an event that I kind of suppressed for four years. And it was only several years later, as I mentioned in another one of these little prequel strips that the book is divided into the strips I actually made between 72 and 78 and strips much made much later in the 2000s, thinking back on my life and what I was doing and why in a first part of the book called Portrait of the Artist as a Young Blankety Blank. And in one of those, it was very specifically uh, talking about how that memory got recovered while I was yelling at my then girlfriend uh, and realizing she didn't do anything wrong. Why are you yelling at her? And a, a Freudian lightning bolt came down and said, you're yelling at your mother. And all of a sudden, it all uh, almost like the cartoon it was in that few panel strip became a revelation of remembering the very specific events of the days you were conjuring up from that early strip. What made you think and, and see how comics could carry all this emotional freight? Well... What was amazing to me was how ineffective the uh, opposing argument was. When I was really little, that was when the comic book burnings were taking place in America, uh, part of um, a hysteria that involved thinking they caused juvenile delinquency, just like now, just like now, when we were thinking that uh, there's a hysteria going around these days that will make your child uh, gender conflicted, for example, or that the problems of our racial heritage in America would be too troubling for children to have to carry through their lifetimes, and therefore those comic books should be put on bonfires and burned, just like the ones that caused nightmares while teaching kids how to become juvenile delinquents and criminals. But I got hold of a bunch of those pre-comic code comics, the ones that had the seal that uh, told you this was approved and therefore could be sold on newsstands, and maybe they were troubling, but I was troubled. And they, what they were was incredibly powerful. I was reading books without pictures, but these images, especially the really great ones published by EC Comics, the Tales from the Crypt comic books and war comics called Two-Fisted Tales that were kind of anti-war war comics by the same man who created Mad, Harvey Kurtzman, and his Mad comics, which were very much anarchic and teaching you to think for yourself and not accept received cultural wisdom. Those indicated to me that comics were as vital in what they could offer as whatever I was getting out of the library from the adult room that I wasn't supposedly allowed to take books out from. That they were Kafka could have been writing for the EC Comics if the timing had been different. May uh, May I ask you what you've been filling your mind with recently? This past year has been, ever since the first book banning, I've been turned into a, a metonym that is responsible for responding to the book bannings that are taking place in America to undermine our educational and library system. And I've lent myself to it, but it left me very, very lost as an artist. I have hardly drawn in the, since last February. And talking to um, whoever needs to talk to me from universities, uh, 
in one case, a congressional committee that wanted me to come and testify about book banning, to setting up a teach-in of sorts, a, a webinar conversation in the county that had banned Mao's, thereby very cannily turning it into a bestseller again. And I've just been engaged by that and allowed myself to be because uh, free speech is a complicated issue these days. To me, it was always open and shut. And I had some kind of perhaps naive faith that occasionally plays out as it ought to, which is that conversation followed by more conversation, even if heated, eventually ends up on the side of, um, I don't know, of the angels, that things sorted themselves out in that process. I don't think that's quite true anymore, even though my emotional bias is toward First Amendment fundamentalism. Do you still pick up the pen? I pick it up, but I but it's a very heavy instrument right now. And I'm, I've got little notes and little doodles and drawings. I have no idea what they can come to. And I'm hoping that the pen gets lighter if I get to use it every day and build up my finger muscles, you know. Uh, so I can't give you, oh, yeah, I'm hot to trot on this particular book. I may be, but I have to start it to see if, if the trail leads anywhere. Art Spiegelman, his new old book, or maybe it's vice versa, his breakdowns. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, and, and, and thanks for indulging me, Scott. It's been fun talking to you. And if you or someone you know is considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Life. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. It's called protein degradation. And if you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order. Because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere.